1: This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I'm joined by Sarah Pixton, and Sarah is uh, going to talk about birth words and reframing the language we use around birth, which I'm very excited about because I am so passionate, but I don't always have the words (laughs) to—she's already laughing at me—I don't always have the the articulate words to describe all the feels I have about birth, so I'm I'm especially excited about this episode. (laughs) So,
0: Sarah, tell us about your background. Okay, Um, so I studied elementary education as my undergraduate degree. And one of the things that really got me going as an educator was I felt like it was so important the way that we talk to our students. Um, And I think it really shapes their identities as learners, how they view themselves. Sometimes there's this tendency, especially starting in elementary school, to be like, oh, the smart kids and the dumb kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that as teachers, you have a huge responsibility in the way that you speak to help everyone frame themselves as learners who can improve, who can overcome challenges, whatever level of achievement yeah. you currently are at, that you can progress and be resilient as things are difficult. Um, and that kind of gets, well, I could go on about I know, that right?
1: for a while, I know, but Jan. that's like where <laughs> soapbox. I'm just thinking all those <laughs> elementary school teachers, yes. Yes. Because little kids, they listen. Right. They oh, want- good job. So smart, right? Like,
0: yeah. oh, I'm the smart one. And they want to like- be, they want to please the teacher. Yeah. And- yeah. Yeah. So I thought when I started my master's degree in applied linguistics that I was going to apply it to the work that teachers do. And I thought I wanted to publish in education journals about that topic, about how it matters, the way that we speak to our kids and how we're framing their experiences. learners. Yeah. Um. So I still really feel passionate about that. <laughs> but accidentally, but, <laughs> you stumbled but. into this whole birthy thing. <laughs> yes. So after my second year of teaching, I had my twins and their birth was an emergency C-section um, after five weeks of bed rest. And like the whole thing just felt very much like a medical emergency. And some parts of it were. Um, there were some serious medical complications not on their side. Fortunately, they were healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but my body kind of was in shock from carrying two people. Yeah. Um, and the birth itself was treated very much as a medical procedure and a medical event. Um, and I came out of it feeling like a disempowered patient. I didn't really have the words to say or describe that at the time. But looking back, that's definitely how I would frame that experience. So when I got pregnant with my son... About three years later, I knew it wanted that I needed it to be different. Uh-huh. And so I did a lot more legwork in preparing for his birth and was able to have a super empowering VBAC. And I remember. After he was born, he was a week or two old and I went out on the playground with my friends in, we lived in an apartment complex at the time and they were like, oh, your baby, he's so adorable. How was your birth? And I was like, it was so awesome. Uh And they were like, that's atypical. Yeah. (laughs) Looking at me like, no, I'm talking about like where a human exited your body. How was that? And I was like, it was the best. And they were like, (laughs) okay. And I was like, do people not normally have this experience? And I, I hadn't, but again, I you was comparing yeah. necessary cesarean to and I, Oh, so you didn't yeah, okay. Right. So I was just kind of like, oh, this is not something that's necessarily a common experience. And I felt very strongly that that needed to be different, that more people needed to be saying, It was so awesome, it was amazing, it like defined my power as a woman, like it was life altering. Yeah. Um, so I decided to become a doula after that. So then for a year or two, I was doing this doula thing and I was doing my applied yeah. linguistics degree. Oh, wow. Um, At the same time. Yeah. So sleep was like
1: not <sighs> twins. and the th- Well, and the and
0: twins were the- old enough by this point, <laughs> but you were already used to no sleep. So no, no. Sleep is so important. <laughs> I make sleep happen. Okay. <laughs> so my twins were sleeping through the night. My uh boy, my son has Oh, he did not really sleep for the first year very much. Yeah. So that worked well, out with Especially your- the first couple of months. I didn't start my master's degree until he was, maybe I started it in January and he was born in September. So he was at least past little, the little, worst part. Yeah. The worst part of his, like, waking up every hour in 15 minutes.
1: So <laughs> you're not only going to births every night, or not every night, it's not well, every night, but to, you're going to births and doing a master's at the same time.
0: Currently. Yeah.
1: Oh, now you're
0: still. Yeah. So, ugh, so let's. So my master's degree, because i am got now two businesses that I'm working on and I have three young kids, my master's degree, I tend to just take one class at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's taken me a while, but it's also nice because it gives me the time to reflect. And especially, I haven't gotten to this part in the story yet, but especially now (laughs) that I'm applying it to birth and that's not something we're talking about in our classes, it gives me the extra time to say like, okay let's reflect on this topic. How does it relate to this sphere that I'm interested in that nobody's talking about in my program? Because yeah. Welcome kind of to our world. Sir, I know. I
1: here, Oh man, I'm so excited to hear what you've learned. Yeah.
0: So, so let's, I'll try to finish telling this story a little faster, but, um, so my, yeah, my son was born. I was like, wow, I need to become a doula. I started my master's program about the same time I started my doula certification training like all the mm-hmm. books that I was reading the certification I did front loads with all the reading and the videos and the childbirth education class and then you do the training and then mm-hmm. you get your certificate at the end of the training um so I was kind of working on both of those things at the same time and sometimes people would ask me like you're doing the doula thing you're doing the applied linguistics thing and I was like I'm just doing so both.
1: as a doula though because some people go into to being a doula because they love um, touching the like they love the physical support or the emotional support. Yeah. Are you going in it? Like what do you your secret sauce for your clients is that you help them kind of
0: the experience is huge for me. That it's gonna be a positive and an empowering experience. And I think the way that we frame it, the way that we talk about it is huge mm-hmm. in preparing for that to be the experience. And then I think the choices that you make along the way and recognizing that you're the one so making you're, the choices. You're not just there. I- I mean,
1: every duel is different, but your style is that you really help the mom, you educate the mom in, in using language to kind of, I mean, I, I'm just seeing, I'm just seeing my, my assumption of what you, how you would practice. Yeah.
0: Um, so we, I mean, I think my premise is that we treat birth as a medical event in general in general Mm -hmm. in our society. There are some medical aspects that need to be cared for, for, sure. but moreover, it's a physical and emotional thing. And you can tie in like spiritual and familial. It's a social thing, like all of those things yeah. work together. But I think that in some ways they can both be addressed in physical and emotional. So I really focus on preparing my clients physically and emotionally. And in the emotional side of things, that's where we talk about the language. Very like cool. How have we been framing birth and this experience and pregnancy? How have you been framing it in your mind throughout your life? And we dig into like, what's helpful, what's going to be something that's going to be positive to take with you to the birth space. And which of these things do we need to work through and just yeah, leave Wow. So helpful. Cool. So, and then I do also do a really, one of my prenatal visits is really focused on the physical aspect. And these are different stretches. I do spinning babies activities and, other stretches and things because it's a very physical act too. So I yeah. do kind of the two pronged approach, but I never, I'm still, let's see. Oh, sorry. Okay. I get you so no. sidetracked. I'm like, tell no. me all the stories. <laughs> I just want to like yeah, yeah, go finish by. how this all came to be. And then we can yes. get into whatever thing. <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of a spaz case over here. No, you're great. <laughs> too excited. You're great. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm pursuing these two things separately. My applied linguistics master's degree and working on the certification for doula work. And then I certified as a doula and was still kind of doing the two-path thing until really it was just over a year ago, uh, maybe like 16 months ago. I woke up in the middle of the night, literally. This is so cliche, but I woke up in the middle of the (laughs) night and the phrase birth words was stuck in my head. And I was like, hmm, well, that's weird. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't go back to sleep for a little bit. And I was like, until I committed like, okay, I'm going to do something where I combine birth and words and that's going to be my path forward. So shortly after that was when um, the evidence-based birth conference was in the planning stages and Rebecca Decker sent out calls for conference workshop proposals. And I was like, well, I've committed to do this birth words thing. And I crafted this workshop that was going to look at the way that we frame the birth space um, specifically as support people as doulas and midwives and nurses uh-huh. um as birth professionals um and got accepted to that conference and that just gave me a lot of momentum to say like okay like here we go this birth words thing that got stuck in my head in the middle of the night it's my thing i'm going to keep going with it so so what do
1: you mean by birth words so what linguistically I mean, I I always say that we have to reframe how we talk about birth. We have to change the culture. But you have the actual mechanisms, like
0: examples of how we can reframe our language surrounding birth. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, my like tagline is language for a better birth. Because like you said, I think that just the way that we talk about birth. I mean, one thing that I love about the work that I do with birth words is that I feel like, It's a little problematic when I try to do an elevator pitch, but I feel like it encompasses everything around birth. I can be like, oh, here's this aspect. And this is how I prep my podcast episodes. Like, oh, here's this aspect of a thing that happens in birth. Like, what relevant linguistic theories can be applied here? What's going on? And then I kind of just dig into it and try to figure out... Okay,
1: the suspense is killing me, so you better lay one on me here. Like,
0: I want an example, a hardcore example. Okay. Do you want one <laughs> that I've already done? Yeah, or? sure. Okay. Um, so, for example, let's see. Um A pretty good example of one that I did recently was about affirmations. So we talk about birth affirmations. Lots of people feel like they're a really powerful way mm-hmm. to anchor themselves. So I recently thought about, okay, so what's going on, like, linguistically when we affirm during birth. Wow! So there's this theory that I come back to a lot because it was really influential in linguistics, and I feel like often applies in the birth space. It's um, J.L. Austin, in, like, the 60s, he came up with speech act theory, and basically— there are several facets of it, but basically, anytime you speak in linguistics, they call it an utterance. So, in any utterance, has three forces: the perloc, the, sorry, the illocutionary force, the locutionary force, and the perlocutionary force. And the illocutionary force is the intent, whatever message you're trying to convey. The is lo- that
1: sometimes? Um, is that sometimes done in body language or tone, and not necessarily
0: the words? Yes, and. It, and it definitely plays into yeah, because sometimes, like you said, the, you're hinting at the illocutionary force doesn't line up with the second one, which is the locutionary force. Which oh, that's is that's where we form. get the passive aggressive stuff, right?
1: Like, wouldn't you oh, like to do that for me, honey? Right?
0: Like, <laughs> is that really a question, or is this a demand, or is this a request? Okay, right? interesting. But we don't always frame them in that way. Yeah. Um. Oh, the grass. This is the example I always use because I have this thing about lawn mowing recently. Oh, the grass is getting long. <laughs> huh. Huh. Weird. <laughs> like, okay, the force of that is at least a request. Any of us <laughs> who are
1: married know that you, that, what's the first part, that big word?
0: Elocutionary Elocutionary force. force. Is at least a request, right? Is it's a- not a... Demand. Sometimes not heard by the other half or maybe <laughs> right. ignored. Right. because I'm framing
1: it as a statement. So if we say I would like a natural birth, maybe maybe the staff hears, um <laughs> I don't really
0: need that. Yeah, okay. I, and then I'm like, I need to write that down. Next podcast episode on birth plans and Yeah, okay. So these affirmations yeah. they <sighs> can actually ha- be misaligned in their Um they could be. Yeah. Um, oh, so the third one, perlocutionary force is the effect, right? So an affirmation often is aligned. And I feel like that's why they're often really powerful, because you're affirming, like, I am strong, right? Or whatever. Like, that's kind of a blah, like flat example. But um, you're affirming to yourself a truth that is... Uh, Going to give you that centering power as a birth giver, um, and then the effect the perlocutionary force should be to recenter you and give you that centering strength. Like because of that affirmation. Um, something that also came up in the affirmations episode is I I can't remember if I remember the linguistics guy's name right now. Uh, it'll come to me hopefully. He talks about. Um, Goffman. Goffman's framing. He talks about um, animators, authors, and principles. And how... So the author is somebody who, like, writes the words. The animator is the person who's moving their mouth, making them happen. Mm -hmm. And the principal is the person who, like, really believes and takes ownership in them. And ideally for an affirmation to really be effective, the birth giver is all three of those things. I was going to say... Yeah, I would love... I'm glad
1: you brought this example up because um, I personally... Um, birth affirmations didn't work for me. Yeah. They made me actually feel pretty unsafe. Yeah. And so I'm now coming out of the closet with this. That, <laughs> yeah, they didn't work. They made me, they gave me anxiety. And yeah. so you're saying one of those three was missing. Were you the author of your affirmations?
0: Did you write nope, them or did you find somebody else's? Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes but I, I don't. think yeah, sometimes if other, you are the principal, like if you were like, that is like, yeah. they gave words to what I couldn't exactly. give words to, then, right? then you are
1: the author still because right. you believed in it. Yeah. So no, but that wasn't the problem because I believed in the words. I liked the words they said. I'm not very articulate, so I took it. Mm -hmm. But then I think it
0: was my belief in them. Okay, like the principle. You weren't like giving the stamp of approval of like, yes. I don't know. There's this whole branch that I still, I haven't studied in my courses, and there isn't a course on it, so I'm going to have to just do my own study of cognitive linguistics that I think as I go into that, as I learn more about it, will really apply to to the birth space and things like this. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Why isn't this quite working out? But that's my kind of...
1: Well, and then we have the meaning of the words, too, because right. I I now, with lots of years of th- self-reflection and therapy, mm-hmm. I now realize that some words are just innately triggering to me right. because of the way I grew up right. hearing them or understanding what they meant. And so if you use those words in, a, in an affirmation, they may be beautiful to somebody, but they're really triggering right. to me. Right,
0: yeah. And I think
1: that like I am beautiful. Like I love the word beautiful, and I do feel that I am beautiful. But I'm not that that word isn't the word I would use. I would say I'm strong, or I'm I have grit, or yeah. I'm tenacious. Tenacious mm-hmm. to me is a um, is also beautiful, but not in the so if I if I do an affirmation, I am beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit right. wonky in my head. Right,
0: and I think that that's something that happens a lot of like I'll have clients that are like eh, I'm not going to do the affirmation thing because it feels hokey, and I think it feels hokey if I mean a there's just if it's kind of a framework that doesn't yeah dive with you then that makes a lot of whatever. sense but also if it's because you feel like you need to ascribe to these statements that you aren't really aligning with uh-huh. um, yeah yeah so another thing that I talk about in my podcast a lot and in like the workshops that I do now I'm offering workshops both for birth professionals and for expectant families um We talk a lot about underlying beliefs and assumptions and how we've talked about this when we were talking about illocutionary force, locutionary force, perlocutionary force. But when we speak, we're not just talking, right? It carries so much underneath with us of Mm -hmm. what we really believe in, what assumptions we're taking with us to the table as we speak. And if you don't have the same experiences, that's going to be problematic when we're communicating. Is that like when you told your friends at the park that your birth experience was awesome and they were very confused? Yeah, because they don't come to it with the experience or the belief that, ner- that birth can be beautiful. This is empowering. also a big deal
1: when you're talking to ge- a di- different generations. So many mm-hmm. of our moms com- talk about birth completely differently. They don't understand what our hoopla is
0: about. Right, and like that plays an integral part in the way that you grow up hearing about something, then that frames the way that you grow up speaking about something. But then if you get to a point when you're like, okay, I'm pregnant, and I've heard birth talked about in this way like my whole life by Mm -hmm. my mom whose pelvis was too small, who could never get a baby out of it, or who always stalled at four centimeters, or who always had to have her water broken, or whatever you've heard... And then maybe you come across like the birth circle podcast and you're like, wow, these women are having a different experience than what I've had um, or what I've heard. And like, I'm pregnant with my first baby and I want to be in this camp, but I'm kind of bringing all of this with me. And I think that that's some of the work that needs to be done to have the birth circle type of birth experience Mm -hmm. that you sit down and you're like, what do I, what have I heard said about birth? What What do I really believe about the way the experience can be? And where is all this coming from? And like, just really pick it apart. Um, I also talk a lot about, so discourse is this big thing in linguistics. There's this guy called James Paul G. And he talks about a discourse is basically like, like a speech code. Like if you have a dress code. Oh, yeah, yeah. For...
1: We're not using discourse in this podcast. We're using conversational. Does,
0: are you talking about discourse as like a way you speak? Well, so in any situation that you're in, you're involved in some kind of discourse. So as you and I sit here, we're in the discourse of birth workers. Um, so oh. we're speaking to each other. And like that's why we can communicate together because we come from the same sort of background and experiences we have the same shared lingo we even like might dress the same way or be accustomed to sitting in the same way or have certain topics that are like normal for us to converse about that <laughs> might not be in another Nipples. discourse right Nipples. like <laughs> i'm not i'm not pulling back because you said that cuz like yeah that no, is it, yeah it's
1: really and i adjust and i i see what you're saying so i I kind of adjust to my right. guest every week right. and their discourse. Like I right. meet them. So you're saying discord is discourse is
0: partly meeting somebody on that cultural level? Yeah. It's kind of so this is what I was trying to remember before. So language is a semiotic system and semiotic means that it's signs that bear meaning, right? So We do our best to express the things that we're doing, the things that we're feeling, what we're trying to say with words, but really they're just like, I'm throwing symbols at you. Oh. And they have so much more behind them. But it's just like it's just a few letters that I'm throwing at you. And and a few noises. So that's where misunderstandings come from, is when the symbols are misinterpreted. Right. Because we're operating probably in different discourses. Oh, being a human is so hard. So G talks about discourse. He talks about lowercase d discourse, which is just like the words and the language level of things. But then he talks about capital D discourse, which is where you wrap in also like the clothes that you might wear. Like a police officer in a police uniform, his uniform is or her uniform is part of that discourse. Oh, okay. Um he gives an example. I think of if you show up at a bar in a suit and tie and speak as you would at a business meeting, you're not going to be received into that space because you're operating. So we in a different have that discourse.
1: seriously in birth. So you have a woman seriously. coming in, in a, in a and then her doctors in this, uh, you know, white coat with a thing around right. his neck exactly around his
0: neck and we're at a different discourse. Yeah. So that like when we put birth in the hospital, the hospital has its own discourse and it is medicalized, right? And Oh, interesting. Nurses speak to each other in clinical, medicalized terms because they're in a hospital and that's what hospitals do and hospitals mm-hmm. are for caring generally for those who are sick or in severe pain that's like injury, right? Mm-hmm. Injury pain um, or who really need treatment because they have a medical need. Something is wrong and it mm-hmm. needs to be helped, right? Um And so with the way that medical professionals speak and interact and the way that they dress and all of these things, that's the message that you're sending. But if a birth giver comes into a space as like the epitome of life and health, bringing a new life into the world and is treated or spoken to or interacted with as if she's a medical patient, there's this mismatch, especially if... She's coming from a different discourse, especially if she is aligning yeah. with these ideas of this is a natural physiological process. My body was made. Or to can do you this. imagine? I mean,
1: can you imagine taking somebody from a completely different culture, like a different country, with a different language right. and a different yes. birthing tradition, yeah. and putting them in our American hospitals? That would also yes. show the difference in the discourse.
0: Yes, because likely, a around birth they have a totally yeah. different way of speaking, interacting, whatever. And then B, just generally, and then, yeah, you throw in a different native language. And I talked a little bit, um, I did an episode with a local doula who is bilingual, who talked about how she really feels passionate about supporting Spanish speakers because she's from the Dominican Republic, I'm pretty sure. She feels like it is her role to be able to support Spanish-speaking women in their language Because, especially when you're giving birth and you're in such a vulnerable place, you don't want to have to be doing the cognitive work of translating into English, even if you speak it. Oh, yeah. Even fluently, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not going to be your mother language, your your native tongue is way different. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, I love my work with birth words because I feel like anything, any topic, I'm like, ooh. Yeah, I could touch on that. I could dig into that. That's interesting. And it's so, so fascinating
1: to me because I'm always all about colors and movement and pictures and sparkles and just kidding. I'm not into sparkles, but I mean, I, this visual, I'm I'm a visual. And so to learn about language, it's fascinating to me because I don't yeah. think twice about it. I just, it's
0: not on
1: my mind, but it is well, obviously it's not on a, your mind. It's
0: not a scene <laughs> system, right? It's funny though, because uh, because I'm so oriented to language like language is a visual thing for me like i have words going across my mind but i don't have really the visual like i cannot really take a good photograph to save my life <laughs> whenever my clients are like do you you're like, like no. take pictures i'm like i will like make sure I you will know that there was a, a baby photo. Photo in your arms <laughs> But it's not going to be artistic. Yeah. Like we can capture like this happened, but we can't capture and, the and moment. And she will explain
1: that in such beautifully articulate words <laughs> that the mother will know.
0: I'm If you want beautiful videography <laughs> and beautiful photography. Maybe not you. I can refer you to some <laughs> awesome birth videographers. And if you need to talk
1: about your birth and your linguistic choices, <laughs> I can refer you. Right. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just love the nuance. Everybody has their own their own strengths and their own, you know, what what how they see the world and it's finding the guides, the wise women. I have a friend that says a wise woman is somebody whose, whose hair is not on fire at the same time yeah. yours is. So it's a pretty broad definition, but finding our wise women are our, our wise um mentors that can help us mm-hmm. find the tools we need.
0: Yeah, and recognizing, like, this is my niche, this is my space, yeah. and yours is this, and yep. we can, like, you talk about this yeah. village network of just reaching out to each other and yeah. supporting each other. I think that's awesome. Do you want me to just go down my list yeah, and keep go talking about things? Mm-hmm. Um, some of these are just some ideas that I haven't really dug into yet, but um, one thing that's really fascinating, there's a linguistic theorist named Bourdieu. And he talks about how the body is a memory pad. What do you think about, like, with regards to birth? When I say that, well, I do believe
1: in epigenetics. I believe that things that are not just genetic, like what color your eyes are, but um, lived trauma, yes, does pass genetically, yeah, um, through they they, and whether it's some of it's environmental, like babies who are gestating while their moms under extreme stress, they are actually more insulin um, insulin resistant, which Mm -hmm. means that their body holds on to weight a lot, a lot easier Mm. because they, they were based in this stress hormone as a baby. So they knew they were coming into this world being really stressed. So if, if we can even do that, then yeah,
0: our, our body is a memory. I believe everything is stored
1: in there. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think that even you're talking about a pretty like physical and actual hormone bathing the Mm -hmm. body. But I think that, our words do the same thing from, mm -hmm. right? And that you're just surrounded in this. We've heard energy has words. I mean, words have energy. Wow. (laughs) Words have energy. (laughs) Yeah. And that they just shape your experiences. And if you've been spoken to in certain ways, in certain situations, and then you're spoken to in a different situation with Mm -hmm. those same words, right? That's why it's triggering. That's why things like cervical exams are so important. The way that you frame your, your language, right? As a. I'm going to do that. Right. I'm I'm going to need
1: to check you right now. Right. It's very different than... Right. How do you feel about your progress? Would you like me to solidify that in, yes. a, in a vaginal check?
0: Yes. <laughs> Cervical check? And then sometimes, um, I haven't done, I don't think I've any done, done any episodes. I've had some conversations with some birth workers who focus a lot on trauma-informed care. Yeah. And caring for survivors of sexual abuse and if you're saying to somebody while you're checking their cervix, if you hold still, I'll be done sooner, or right, don't even get, I don't even like, get, I, ooh, don't even so get triggering. Oh right? my goodness. Because there's this language that, if in their lived experience, has mm-hmm. this memory on their body, and then you suddenly bring them back to it with these triggering words. Yeah. We don't okay, need to yeah. go into that because it's yucky. Yeah. But, but at the same time, like it's so important to be aware of because mm-hmm. I think that sometimes clinicians are just like, I'm a clinician doing my clinician thing, like checking my box, like, yep, we did a cervical exam. We're supposed to do those every two hours. Check, check, need to get it done because like I'm in clinical mode and we're operating in that sphere when somebody's bringing new life into the world in a very vulnerable way, whatever their history is, whether yeah. there's a survivor history or whether they're like, it's still... A they just very don't want to open their legs, I mean. Vulnerable <laughs> time, right. And, like, this goes for cervical exams. It goes for every interaction, mm-hmm. though, that we have in the birth space and in prenatal appointments. And, like, people don't want to feel well, like they're... I brought this this example up to somebody recently. They, they didn't
1: see the, the connection I was trying to make, but you would never expect your dentist to, like, sit down... Unopen your mouth for you. Right. They always say, "Open your mouth, please." A little wider, right. and and um, they say, "Oh, I'm going to go in the back." Or they, you know, you you would never expect a dentist to treat your mouth the way sometimes we treat women's bodies in birth. Yeah. Like we just we just go in and we give ownership to our bodies to this practitioner, and then but in in dentistry we don't.
0: Right. Yeah. That's it's very <laughs> interesting. And. It, I mean, and there's a whole tangled history of...
1: And if somebody tried to stick their finger... Your dentist tried to, like, play with the back of your tongue. You'd be like, bite him. Like, knock it off. Explain to me why you're doing that before you mess with right. the back of my tongue. And he'll say, oh, I was looking for lumps for cancer because that actually did happen to me once. I was like, what are you doing?
0: <laughs> you're like, oh, actually, that did happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, yeah. There's a whole tangled history of why yeah. that happens in the birth space. and And it just... I mean, it just makes me... Yeah, angry right that like in in, like if that had to happen in some space then yes let my dentist forcefully open my mouth because he's cleaning my teeth but like I am bringing a person into the world (laughs) like in this space if If, not in any other I need to be respected and honored well that's what I'm saying in something as
1: as as benign as a dental cleaning you get respect for your your mouth you know your the bodily autonomy, right? Yeah, and then you don't get it in birth. Yeah. But. Tangent. Yeah. Okay. Tangent. <sighs>
0: Soapbox. <laughs> <Oops. sighs> um, you want me to keep going? Yeah. Keep going. Um, so I've done a few episodes also on infertility. and Only one of them's come out so far, but I think that's a huge thing, and that's one of the things that I always worried about when I got into birth work. Um, I so my twins were conceived with Clomid. Um. I know many people struggle, sometimes for years, sometimes for months, however long it lasts. It's like the worst. (laughs) See, I'm so articulate. (laughs) It's really, really bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I absolutely don't want to be insensitive to people who have that struggle because... By always talking about birth. Because when you're in that space, it feels like everybody's always talking about pregnancy and birth. Yeah, so and how do
1: we not be whatever. offensive with our symbols and our <laughs> sounds <laughs> that you were talking about? It was like, How do we be gentle and kind? And um, So we
0: talked a little bit about... I was chatting with Natasha from Bebomia, which I don't... Bebomia, I mispronounced it, um, last week. And she was talking about something that you can do verbally is validate, right? That often in that space, people jump to like, oh, well, have you tried X? Have you tried Y? Like this worked for me, which is another way of saying, well, you're doing something wrong. Like you need to be trying this thing that's happening for somebody else that made Again, it work for somebody else. Again, that's not the intention, but right. that's the effect. Right. Exactly.
1: Look at you. I know. Do you
0: remember the I, words? Nope. Nope. No, not at all. <laughs> right. So yeah, maybe the elocutionary force there is like, I'm going to counsel, right? I'm going to give advice. Well, maybe we don't need advice. The effect then sounds like shaming, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they really need to be feeling probably is, wow, that's hard. I'm so sorry that you're going through that. That must be so heavy. And then if they want to talk more about it, that gives a space for it. If they don't, they at least feel like, yeah, this is heavy. This is hard. Um, because it's so, again, especially I think in the case of infertility, especially if you go down um the path of pursuing some infertility treatments, then you're really in this space of feeling like a patient. That yeah. Something is so... Wrong. And um, we talked about how language is a semiotic system. There are lots of other semiotic systems too, right? anything that's giving meaning and basically our whole, whole world is just made up of them and it's based on our experiences like there's this microphone in front of me it's like a stick with a green ball on the end. And because I have experiences in my life that I know that that's a microphone, I know I'm supposed to sit in front of it and talk to it. But if that wasn't part of my lived experience, like, I would have no idea what basically anything in this room is. Uh Um, Anyway, and so we associate these different objects, different signs in different semiotic systems with different areas of so you, different you spheres see the, you see these four sets come out in the right. delivery
1: room and you know what they're for right yes so um or you see oh my favorite is you see the doctor come in with the the poncho thing that he turn, right. puts on from the front and the splash guard and you're like I, yay baby's coming
0: yeah <laughs> which is funny right because like I don't know it's just this uh, like yeah. symbol that, we've, that now has meaning because it happens in the birth space but yeah Um, um, but in the case of infertility for me so there was blood work done right which again can kind of be part of pregnancy or infertility so that was kind of like okay whatever then the results came back and they said oh this hormone level, your prolactin level looks pretty high sometimes that means you have a tumor on your pituitary gland and we need you to have an MRI to see if that's what's going on and I had like barely ever been sick with anything other than a cold in my life like I was such a healthy person that when I went to that space and I was laying in the uh, in the MRI machine that symbol was like it was terrifying to me because this beeping machine and me laying flat on my back was just so foreign to my experience and all of these signs of like I all these things are telling me that I am unwell that something is wrong with me right whereas my lived experience before that was that I was a healthy strong able-bodied yeah. being um, and I think that uh, it's really jarring to be thrown into another semiotic system like and to have this identity thrust upon you of like medical patient because you're
1: okay so that hormones were out of whack birth, or whatever birth, right that's a for through the fertility and the birth experience
0: you're thrown into another right. system and many women have not been hospital patients before they give birth. I'm pretty sure, well, I guess I was on bed rest in the hospital beforehand. And that really gave me the identity of hospital patients because I was <laughs> there for four weeks. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that my birth experience felt so disempowering because I just got into this space of like medical patient. And then what I did as a patient for four weeks, I wanted to be savvy, right? Because I'm a learner. (laughs) I want to watch these learners. When your top strength is learning. Yeah. I was picking up on all the terminology that they were using with me and whatever. And like to the point where nurses would be like, oh, are you a nurse? And I'd be like, no, I'm just so savvy in the (laughs) medical terminology. But I wasn't really savvy with what was really going on with my body as a, Mm. I mean, in terms of the medical complications, I was on bed rest for preterm labor. Um, I don't know, but I was very immersed in this like medical discourse about birth. Uh, and then my experience was a very medicalized one. And in a medical system, where was I like, if we were to draw a pyramid of hierarchy of, you know, people's positions, the patient is not at the top of that pyramid, right? Yep. They're, they're the recipient of care. And, it, they're the focus of care and they're being served through that, but it just puts you in this disempowered mm-hmm. place. Like
1: Well, I mean it's like me going to Jiffy Lube. Oh, heaven help me. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> I mean
0: Jiffy Lube exists. Right, they're to serving therapy. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not like gonna you're not gonna walk out I there know, feeling empowered in your car ownership. No, nope, right? Not like, zero of it. <laughs> right. So do we expect women to walk out of a hospital? Birth, right? Feeling empowered in the ownership of their bodies, or have they been made to tr- be treated like their body is like a car being serviced at Jiffy Lube? That's separate from their identity and their being. Right. That's right. why I use that example because. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. What do you mean? You tell me I have no brakes left? I thought I was. I can stop. Fine. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jiffy Lube man. And we, see that
1: yeah. I mean my mind just right. went,
0: I know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> we, could go.
1: we could totally tangent here <laughs> if we want. Let's to, make
0: the choice not to tangent here. Okay. Do you want me to go into my next yes. thing? Okay. So um we talked a little bit about I, during birth preparation feel like it's really important to learn how to produce and receive positive language. And so as far as producing in positive language, I do some activities that help my clients um think about their feelings and beliefs about birth, about medical interventions in birth um about authority figures in birth, and about like kind of their experience their relationship with their partner if they're in a committed relationship and their partner's feelings about their abilities as a birth giver and those sorts of things um, and that can be this some for some people it's kind of just a quick like affirming, writing mm-hmm. down whatever, but it can also be a pretty in-depth experience of peeling back where different feelings are coming from and how we're going to work through them and pinpointing all the way back and like uh, inducting yourself into a positive mm-hmm. birth space. I think that a big reason that my second birth experience was very different than my first was because I inducted myself into this like society of women who had had positive birth experience and I did that mostly by reading positive birth stories but before my baby was born like I was with these women who were empowered who Mm -hmm. were life givers who just were in awe of the things that they could do and so that's what happened when I gave birth whereas in the other one I was inducted into like this medicalized patient system where I was just laying in bed literally for five weeks before my twins were born. um, So you can really change
1: your birth outcome simply by changing the linguistical approach about, I mean, there's other things, but
0: to, to boil it all down. Right. I mean, and it's like in one way, like simply by doing this in another way, like it's very complex because the system that you're operating in is so many layers and you kind of, I just, I have different. a
1: random story. So I'm yeah. hoping that you can bring it back okay. in here. Okay. <laughs> I, I, um, know somebody, a birth worker who, um, has this thing about red sheets and if there's red sheets or red pillowcases or whatever, she believes it'll make the mom hemorrhage. And she's like, I was at a birth one time and the mom hemorrhaged really bad. She's like, see, see, it's cause you had red sheets. Yeah. I mean, I tell my clients you can't have red sheets. And I thought, interesting is that a linguistic thing that we're talking about then is that is that an example
0: of how you i mean i think it's a semiotic thing at least mm-hmm. for, okay. her, for whatever reason that that's a symbol of yeah. hemorrhage um i
1: mean i didn't not believe her but i just thought it was really interesting that that she would that would be so important to her
0: and this is she's a midwife a uh, Birth worker, yeah. A birth worker. So it's her clients that she's mm-hmm. was has she had a personal experience? I with? don't know. But I was that's just wondering if that yeah, if, if that's Some, a I mean, yeah, somewhere along the way.
1: So if so if somebody sign. has something in their births that in their gosh, you use so many big words. <laughs> So, I mean, to a doctor, it makes right. sense to have the goggles and the splash guard. That's part right. of this thing. That It doesn't have to affect you. Just like this birth worker, the red thing, it didn't have to like make the mom. In fact, the mom didn't feel, she's like, what are you talking about? Knock it off. I mean, for right. her, it didn't have any meaning to the mom. Right.
0: And so she just was able to just kind of ignore it. Yeah. So that's another thing. Um, so I talked, we talked about producing and receiving positive language. And I think another part is just understanding the systems that you might be part of. Um, and like you said, the goggles and the gown, the mm-hmm. backwards gown, having a specific meaning. And it may or may not bother the woman giving birth. Like, may, For some women, that might be like, whoa, what kind of a costume is he putting on? Because he looks very doctorly. Yeah. And I'm not feeling like a patient. I'm feeling like I'm about to bring life into the world. And some people might be like, oh, yeah, that's just what they do. Um, So I think part of that is just getting to know the systems that you're choosing to be a part of. If you're choosing a hospital birth, then becoming comfortable with what sorts of terminology might they use. I just did the VBAC link, um, their advanced doula training, and they talk about TOLAC. Some women find that really triggering that the T in TOLAC stands for trial of labor. Mm. And people are like, I'm not going to try. I'm going to do. I'm going to have this VBAC But they wisely recognize that this is a term that's going to come up. So then they help the women understand. Oh, that's a really good
1: example. Because to me, trial also um, feels like I'm being judged.
0: Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. I have to perform. Like you have to prove that your yeah. body, like is your body's on that trial. Like really can it give birth vaginally or not? Bugging me, yeah. But you can't just be like, oh, we just won't use that word. We don't use the term. <laughs> if you're giving birth in a hospital, right? Because right. they're going to use that term and you don't want that to throw somebody off when they're in active labor and you hear like, oh, she's a lac And they're, they're like, ah, ah! totally thrown off. Like I'm on trial. You have to understand where that term's coming from and what system it's oh, a part of. that's a fantastic of. example. And then you can separate mm-hmm. yourself from that and say like, I'm in this system, operating in this system, and that's theirs. And yeah, so that's another thing we do. Okay, so informed consent. We've talked a little bit about, and I just recorded an episode on this. It hasn't been released yet, but I think there's this progression of no consent to consent to informed consent. About coerced consent. Yeah, maybe that's somewhere in the Like yeah. between no consent and consent. To informed decision making. Um and I think that that has a lot to do with as the care provider, what terms the care provider's using, how the care provider's approaching it. You can't really give informed consent if the care provider's not using their words to explain the benefits <laughs> your and words. risks
1: right use yeah. your words will you please could you please use your words but also using the words wow okay man you've just opened up a whole can of worms in my mind <laughs> like cuz the 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 care provider can can provide information like in the in the form of a question or informed consent Ooh, but yes. the, the the listener can can interpret that as coercion or anything else yes i mean like for example when i was i had the shakes after my first it was a really fast hard 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 birth and i just was shaking uncontrollably i had no idea that this was a normal physiology Mm -hmm. of the adrenaline rush at birth the other babies, I just kind of wrote it and made it fun. But the first baby, I was I was freaking out because right. I thought I was going to die. I mean, it's very disconcerting to have that, the, your first experience. And so I was just shaking. And I was probably shaking a little more than I needed to because I wanted the attention. Because, hello, I was dying on the table. Why was nobody noticing? And the doctor says, if you don't stop it, I'm going to make you breathe in a bag. And I was like, so then I like stuffed it. And I remember thinking, I don't know why he would have me breathe in a bag, but it sounds like a bad thing. So I better stop. When really he was just trying to, you know, I was shaking. And he was trying to stitch me up, and it was really inconvenient for him. But you know, the language he used—I'll make you breathe in <laughs> I'm a bag. Just,
0: like, staring at you, wide
1: eyed, like. like I know. I'm okay, mean, a. I'll make you. <laughs> I'll make you breathe in a bag. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And then I was like, "Well, somebody, please explain to me what's
0: going on, right?
1: Because yeah. you're just." This is a totally no new experience.
0: And he's operating in his sphere, like doing his job. He's thinking, why is this lady like freaking out so bad? She's the shakes. And I'm thinking why am I freaking out so bad? And I'm thinking, I'm no why am I dying? how am I
1: dying? I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no. So that's an example of of
0: um that what he was saying was interpreted completely differently. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is interesting. Deborah Tannen wrote a book like in the eighties or nineties, which some of it's still relevant. Some of it's not um, called, you just don't understand women and men in conversation. And she talks about meta messages and whether or not like it's a cross gender role, gender role, (laughs) like if it's because he's operating in the way that men typically speak and you're operating in the way that women typically speak, or if it's because um, a cross discourse thing right like whether it's medical versus physiological or whatever Mm -hmm. like you're in operating in two different discourses and so the meta message is Deborah tannin talks about a meta message is the thing that's heard whether or not it's the thing that was intended and that's that's a perfect example of like what was heard versus what was intended were totally different
1: yeah, and I feel... And, the, yeah. and we, and nations go to war over these things, so... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think also uh, you said something earlier that I want to go back to and that part of the thing you can do is you can ask the person to to what their understanding was or how did you feel about that or where are you coming from right. and see if your message is delivered clearly. Yes. Because, um,
0: yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking. So, I mean, my whole takeaway from this this conversation that we've been having is recognizing that language is a semiotic system. It's signs and symbols that are very based on lived experience and recognizing that nobody Nobody. has the same lived experience as you. So when they're speaking with these signs, these little symbols of just words, letters packaged together Uh to make words, it carries meaning that is in some ways um, universal to those speaking that language, but also unique to each Super speaker, right? And also, what do
1: you say to the people that, because I, I, I don't, okay, ready, soapbox, get out the soapbox, stepping on. <laughs> I just, I get really frustrated with our culture recently with with languaging in um, basically saying that I say what I mean and it's up to you, the listener, to interpret what I'm saying correctly. And it really bothers me that, you know, in it politically correct, if, if there's a misunderstanding, it's
0: always the listener's fault. And I'm just I mean, a little frustrated. I, I mean, and I feel like it's totally counterintuitive. To, I mean, it's counter, like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because what you're saying, your words carry, like we said, meaning based on your lived experience, which nobody else has. And... If you're speaking in like the same discourse as somebody else, you have more shared experience yeah. and you can but like relate you, more. The trial of
1: what was that word? Tol- TOLAC. TOLAC. Yeah. That I mean, you give that example as you prepare the moms, they're going to hear it. Right. Now we can't educate the doctors to right. to know that, that word can be triggering to some moms. Right. But at the same time, it's it's a two it's a two way street. The the care providers need to know that may be triggering. But also the listener needs to know that they're not trying to hurt them by using that word. Right.
0: And they're not trying, you know. Right. I mean, sometimes, sometimes they are. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. And I'm not saying that like listeners have no responsibility. It's very much a two-way. But the, yeah. But
1: confusing the intention with the effect—that's mm-hmm. that's what I think a lot of listeners do. Is what was the doctor intending by using that word, right. and what was the effect? And right.
0: if if they assume the doctor was after the effect, then It just gets all messy, right? Right, and just recognizing that because we operate in different systems and different Mm -hmm. lives, that the way that you say something is going to come across differently, and I I think to different people.
1: This is the end of my soapbox, but I think the more we know about ourselves and who we are, and what triggers us personally, and what um, and how we deal with those triggers, and how we, you know, (laughs) who we are, the less. Um, offended we are, or the less dangerous other people's words are to mm-hmm. us. But yeah. if I don't know, if I don't know why those affirmations make me crazy, then when somebody says them, I can think, oh, you're just trying to bug me instead of going, right. no, I know exactly why that word triggers me. And and then
0: it doesn't become about them. It's about me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, it's this interesting space because I absolutely think that in birth birth professionals should reframe the way that they talk about birth like Mm -hmm. I do make that claim that there is language that is disempowering and disrespectful for those bringing life into the world like period hands down
1: don't tell a woman she needs to breathe in a bag, okay? <laughs> I should have gotten a laurel and a, a wreath of laurel, a laurel wreath and a, and, a, yes. and a snow cone. I mean, really. I a snow cone. That's
0: what they should. Okay.
1: Actually, that birth, it was frosty. It was like the baby came
0: out. I was like, where's my frosty? <laughs> Congratulations. Here's your prize. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like you say, we can't be responsible for what everybody around us is saying. Right. So the more we understand what people are doing with language what we're doing why that word's triggering to me why whatever the more we understand the system that we're operating in then we can better relate to people operating in different oh I
1: love that so if you know that somebody's saying "Hmm, that grass is getting pretty long (laughs) I mean you I, I now with the system I know what you're doing right and so
0: I can react yeah more informed. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely think that it's a shared responsibility for speaker and listener. But you can only take responsibility for whichever role you're currently filling. So whatever role you're filling, whether you're speaking or listening, I think it's just important to so, be mindful.
1: So is life really, really hard for you linguistic people? Because... <laughs> <laughs> like, overthinking what are well, saying? Yeah, things. you're just hearing everybody, you're like, you're using the wrong... <laughs> uh, not wrong, though. It's That's not, the thing. You're like not the grammar police. You're right. like the... You're like the queen of the grammar police. Like...
0: Oh, no, just me just give me. See, I grew up being the grammar police and thinking like, That's oh, wrong, that's wrong. People need to do it right, but linguistics doesn't take that approach. Like I have a cousin who studied linguistics as her undergrad and her mom's an elementary school teacher and she's like, Well, my daughter's telling me that there's really no right grammar or whatever. Like it's just <laughs> kind of how people speak and whatever, like it's well, kind English of, it's, is it's, kind it's, of a free for all. <laughs> I mean we, we have rules. Uh, right. But, <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean and except when we don't.
0: And then we have rules for those not having rules and then anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so it's less about whether people are saying things right or wrong and more about understanding where they're coming from, what sort of system they're operating in and how meaning is conveyed in that system and what system you're operating in and how you're gonna relate to that, I think.
1: So um is there anything I I feel like we're winding this up really up nice
0: in a package, but is there anything else that we need to to know? Yeah, I would just say wrapping things up that, like we were saying, it's important to understand what system you're operating in. And I think that the takeaway is just like this applies. It applies in birth, obviously. It applies everywhere in our interactions. But um, when you're in those situations where somebody says something that really gets to you, maybe just take a step back and consider what system you're working in. And then that's not to say that you need to embrace somebody else's like where oh, they're I coming that. from. Yeah. Right. But just, I think that it gives you, I, th- I want, like I said at the beginning, language for a better birth. And in as much as I want to change the language that those working in the birth space use, mm-hmm. I also feel like it's really important just for those giving birth to be mindful of the language that they're using and to be mindful of the language that they might encounter that, won't jibe with the experience that they want to have and to be able to separate from that and move forward in a confident and empowered way regardless. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Okay. So you've mentioned it. We probably should have started at the beginning with this, but you do have an amazing podcast. Thank you. So tell people where they can listen to you and listen.
0: The the podcast (laughs) is called birth words and it's on Apple Podcasts, Google, um, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or if you want to listen directly at birthwords.com slash podcast. And do you you have a book or are you writing a book? I'm writing a book. I'm working on online courses. Right now, the state of the online courses is that they're one-on-one consultations that you can sign up for a Zoom call and we can talk through some of these things in more detail and in more specifics to the situation of the client. Yeah. Stay tuned in the future. They I know. Are I can't be wait. <laughs> more of a full packaged online yeah. course. With I mean, I a, a bet you this would
1: really be amazing for um, couples. So the yeah. birthing the birthing person and her partner, mm-hmm. so that they can work through. They can they can come at this united and also yeah. work on their own language. Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I offer it both for expectant families and birth professionals. And there's going to always be more coming. You can go to Birthwords.com to sign up for the newsletter so you know when the things. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. It was just a pleasure.
1: Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.